All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to turn to study God's word, so go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. And let me just say a word of welcome to guests who are with us here in the room, friends on live stream. Thanks for joining us here this morning. We're going to continue moving through Genesis. Uh, we're just, I got to call an audible here and just notify you. We're not going to make it to Genesis 11 by Palm Sunday. That was the plan, and it's just not looking likely. And so I'm just owning up to that now. I've been trying to resist it for weeks, and it's just not happening. There's so much here in these passages, and I'll have a larger passage that was selected in advance, and then I look at it, and it's like, no, let's just do 10 verses. Let's just slow down. So we'll come back, Lord willing, and we'll hit some of those other chapters that we don't get to when uh, Palm Sunday comes knocking here in a few weeks. So Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, if you would follow along as I read. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So here we are at another massive moment in the early history of the world where God institutes, we saw the institution of Sabbath, we saw the institution of work, we see here the institution of marriage and family. These are the blueprints of the world. These are the massive foundations for all human life and human culture. I don't need to say it to us, but I'll just say it out loud. Marriage is a very confusing subject right now. And it's confusing, especially given the radical redefinition of not only marriage, but gender itself. So there's a lot of confusion both without the church as well as within the church. So outside the church there's confusion and then there's confusion inside the church. Sometimes the church can elevate marriage to a place where it speaks as if the single life is not a life that glorifies God, as if you can't be fully human unless you're married. Well, it's just a reminder for us here this morning, the savior we follow was never married. And never has there been a more alive human being than Jesus Christ, our single savior. (laughs) He was never sexually active. He was never married. He was never alone. It wouldn't have been good for him to be alone either. And he wasn't alone. He had friends. He had disciples. He had brothers and sisters who he walked with. So let's not elevate marriage to the point where we leave the impression that you can't be fully alive as a human being without it. 
Not only that, but so many Christian books imply that marriage is all about me. It's just about my happiness, and my job is to find somebody who can make me as happy as I need to be. And so the hunt for the spouse is the hunt for my own joy in the future and happiness in the future. The spouse's call is just to fulfill all of my all of my needs. It reminds me of a cartoon I saw years ago. It might have been a far side, but it looked like a far side c- comic. And there's a group of cavemen and they're on, uh, they're on the edge of a cliff. There's a group of cavemen and then there's, a, there's an actual caveman falling off the cliff. And he's falling off because he's been pushed by the leader of the cavemen. And as he's falling, the group of cavemen, they look there and they're seeing him falling down. And the leader who pushed him off says in the caption, well, is there anyone else whose needs aren't being met? So you can see even there when you think about marriage and marriage books, if outside of marriage, so we're not talking about the context of marriage in the church, when we're talking outside the context of marriage, what are we talking about? We're talking about things like discipleship and mission and sacrifice and taking up one's cross. And then if we're talking about that outside of the marriage and then we start talking about marriage and the only things we say is style of communication and date nights and love languages, We're missing the meaning of marriage. Marriage is deeper than communication styles and date nights and love languages. It's not about us. There's something so much richer in marriage than the marriage itself. Marriage has a purpose beyond the marriage itself. And I hope we're gonna see that this morning in three sort of pictures that emerge in our text. The first is the need. The need. So, so far in the creation account, one thing that we noticed the very first week we were studying Genesis chapter one is this repeated pattern of language that's used. God creates something and then he says, it was good. And every day he makes something and forms something and he says it's good. So seven it was good statements in chapter one. And then this surprise comes when we get to chapter two, verse 18, because there's this jarring sort of the, the, the scratch of the record that, right, something stops, the music stops, because we hear the, for the first time the words that something is not good. This is the first not benediction word in the creation narrative. And you see it in chapter two, verse 18. You see it? Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So the one thing in creation that was not good is the man was alone. When it says it's not good for the man to be alone, it's not saying that it's not good for him to be alone because essentially Adam was lonely. Adam may or may not have been lonely. The the point when it says that it was not good for the man to be alone, the point is that the task that's been given by God to the humans is too big for Adam. He can't pull this off by himself. God has already told the humans, and Adam came first, be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue. Here's Adam, that's what they call a non-starter. He's he's not gonna be able to actually rule or subdue or be fruitful or multiply by himself. So when it says it's not good that the man is alone, it means he can't pull this off without someone else. And he's gonna find out who that someone else is in a moment. So that's why it makes sense, right? It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. It doesn't say I will make him a companion as much as companionship is an important part of marriage. Malachi 2, we'll talk about a wife being a companion to her husband. So the Bible talks about that, but here the foundations, the blueprints, right at the very beginning, it says this woman is necessary for Adam because he can't pull off the task without her. Eve is created to help with the mission. 
Leaving marriage aside for just a moment, even outside the context of marriage, realize this, the work of the kingdom of God necessitates both genders. Men and women. I love the end of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 16 where the apostle Paul, he names all these men and women without which the mission would not be fulfilled. He needed every single one of those 33 names. They were all necessary if we're going to fulfill the task that God has given to the church. God's mission in the world requires brothers and sisters, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And all the way back in Genesis chapter two, you see it, Adam can't do this alone. If you're taking notes, this is in your notes. She is needed because he can't be fruitful, multiply, rule and subdue on his own. I love how author Walter Wangeren puts it. He writes, it doesn't say that God would make a lover fit for him. Marriage is not romanticized in the creation account. Its ideal purpose is not one of sweet feelings, tender moods, poetical affections, or physical satisfactions. Not a lover, but a helper. Marriage is meant to be flatly practical. The fact that a spouse is termed a helper declares that marriage was never an end in itself, but a preparation. We've accomplished no great thing yet in getting married. We have not completed a relationship. Rather, we've established the terms by which we will now go to work. Now that makes sense of the language that is used in the text. It's not good for the man to be alone. Here comes help. And the, the help is needed because the task is great. The term helper is the Hebrew word ezer, and it's a dignifying term. It's not a demeaning term. You know, in our own, in English language, sometimes we'll use the term helper, and we get the impression that sometimes that word is not used in a way that implies dignity or the, the full value and necessity of the kind of work that person is doing. For example, if you, know, you see the classic picture of a, a father and son, and they're out working in the backyard and on, on the deck, and the dad's got a real hammer in his hand, and he's working, and he's got a little helper next to him, and the little helper has a plastic hammer that's essentially doing nothing, right? And sometimes we can think that way, uh, you know, helper, his dad's little helper, or Santa's little helper, that kind of thing. That is not the way the Hebrew word functions. The word ezer is filled, it is injected with tremendous dignity. And we know this because most of the time in the Old Testament when the word ezer is used, it's talking about God. God is the ezer, God is our refuge. Pastor Daniel read this a moment ago during worship. God is our refuge and strength, a very present ezer. In time of need, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my Azare come from? My Azare, my help, comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. In other words, all throughout the Psalms and even throughout the rest of the Old Testament, when the psalmist, for example, needs a shield against a foe that's too strong for him, he cries out for God to be his Azare. And that's what God says about the woman who's gonna show up in a moment. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs an Azer, and I'm gonna bring her in just a minute, and they're gonna get the work done in the world. The creation of male and female involves complementary companionship. One of the things we didn't stop to notice when we were walking through Genesis chapter one is that Genesis 1 is filled with complementary pairs. From the very beginning, from the word go, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there are these, these two, the interplay of these two realms. 
And then you get day and night, and then you get sun and moon, and then you get sky and seas, and then you get fish and birds, and these are, these are creatures that are ruling over domains, and these are realms that are arranged for order and for flourishing of the cosmos. They provide order and stability for the cosmos, and it saves the best pair for last. The creation account saves the best pair for last when God says, I'm gonna make man in my image, male and female, he created them equally necessary if the job is going to get done, equally necessary for the ruling and subduing to which God had called humans. So Adam needs help, that's clear. The, the reader is now going to be looking for how God is gonna supply that need. So we move from the need for help to the search for the helper. Search for the helper who corresponds to him, it begins, and it begins in a really odd way. If you look at your text, something surprising happens between verse 18 and verse 19. Verse 19 is odd because God is forming all these things that don't correspond to Adam, but he just said he was gonna make something in verse 18 that does correspond to Adam. So look at verse 18. I will make a helper corresponding to him, and you're waiting, and the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal <laughs> and every bird of the sky. I thought a helper was coming. I thought something that matched Adam, something that looked like Adam. But here come birds and animals and giraffes and he's bringing everything to the man. And he's saying, name this. What do you think this is? I said, what's going on here? I'll make someone like you, Adam, to help you in the task. And here comes a giraffe. Here comes an aardvark. And Adam's like, okay, so you want me to start naming these things. Okay, let's call this an aardvark. Uh, and he writes it in his little science book. And then he names a lion. And then there's, a, there's another one, and it's, it's a lion too. It's very similar, but it's, it's different. So we'll, we'll call this one a lion. We'll call this one lioness. And the flow of the text seems to suggest that God is parading these animals in front of Adam, not only so he can actually name the animals, but to prepare him for the blessing that is coming. To prepare him for the one who's about to be brought to him, who does correspond, right? You think about that work, the naming of the animals doubled as an exercise in self-awareness, building toward wonder. What kind of self-awareness do you think it's cultivating that Adam is naming all these animals? Because he's starting to realize every creature has a counterpart that is like them, but also different. And he's noticing there's two kinds of squirrels, two kinds of rabbits, right? There's, there's one and then there's another one. There's similarity and there's also difference. And he's noticing these things and he's naming them, them in these ways. And the... The idea there is that as these animals are being paraded in front of him, he's saying every creature has a counterpart except me. I don't have one of these. I don't have one that's like me but different. And you see in verse 20, look at it. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, so this took a while, and to every wild animal but for the man no helper was found corresponding to him. That's interesting words, right? That's Moses, the author, telling us the naming exercise is working. He's starting to realize, I don't have one. I don't have one that's bone of my bone, that's flesh of my flesh, that's similar to me, that's like me and different from me. 
And with this new awareness in place there at the end of verse 20, now we get verse 21. You see verse 21? So, now that he's clued in <laughs> and Adam's got the memo, it's time to go to sleep. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to come over the man and he slept and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. It's the very first surgery in the Bible. It's surgery before the fall. So you can say surgery after the fall, you can say surgery stinks. This was a surgery that was blissful. This surgery was awesome. Because Adam goes to sleep and he wakes up and there she is, right? Adam goes to sleep and God does something awesome while he is out cold. And there's even a lesson I think tucked inside here that I don't want us to miss. God's best work happens while his people are asleep. In Genesis in particular, some of the most important turning points in the book of Genesis happen when the main character is sleeping. God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He's out cold and the torch, which is a theophany, it's a visible presence of the invisible God, represents God's presence. The, the flaming torch passes between the cut pieces of the divided animal and it is the means by which God is saying, I'm going to perform the covenant, all sides of the covenant. From top to bottom, I'm going to bring about my promise that I have given to Abraham. It says, as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. And the very next words are the words of the Abrahamic covenant, a massive turning point in history. And you keep reading and you see the same thing happens to Jacob in, in Genesis chapter 28 and the words of the covenant are reiterated while Jacob is asleep. Asleep, friends, is a parable in the Bible for the initiative of God. God makes the first move. We don't go out and find grace. Grace finds us. It finds us while we are generally inactive. You could call it asleep. You could call it dead in transgressions and sins. Out cold, lifeless and not moving in God's direction. And here he comes while we're asleep and he does something awesome. Friends, you think about it right here in this text. At best, when Adam goes to sleep, he knows what he lacks, but he doesn't know what he needs. And while he's asleep, God sees it and God meets his need while Adam is sleeping. So the need for help, the search for a helper, and finally the gift of help. Verse 21, deep sleep comes over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh in that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and, note those words, brought her to the man. This is the first wedding in the Bible. And the father of the bride is God. He makes her and he walks this woman, Eve, down the aisle and brings her to the man. Here she is, she's here, I've made her, your helper is here. And what happens next? Adam, he wakes up, sees her and sings out. The verse 23 in your text is indented because he's singing. This is too good for prose. This calls for poetry. The first recorded human words in the history of the world are the singing man singing over the first woman. And the first words of his song are, at last, 
I've been naming animals all day and they're not fit. They're not corresponding to me. And he says, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He is full of rapture and wonder. She's the same. She's like me, but she's different. She's gloriously different. And they can't fulfill the task without the other, but now the task can begin. The task of humanity that God had given moves at this point, it moves from mission impossible to mission possible. And what word Adam sings over this woman is the word same. He sings the word same over her, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He is singing about the dignity of this woman who is standing before him. This is what marriage should sound like. This is what marriage sounded like in the beginning. Husbands, how far have we fallen from that sound? In the way we speak of our wives, in the way we speak to our wives, does it sound like we've been singing ever since the garden and there's still a sense of wonder at the one that God has brought to us? Men, so apart from marriage in particular, how about the way we speak about our sisters in Christ? I look back at a picture that we have of our son, Will. He's our middle child, and he's three years older than his little sister, Ellie. And we look back at this picture of Will, and he's three and a half years old, and he's holding a baby, and it's his little sister. And the wonder in his eyes is palpable. There's a sense of just like, what is this? What is this special creature? <laughs> this amazing creature. He's just dazzled just looking at her, right? That's how it was in the beginning. It's the foundation of where it all started, a man singing over the woman that God had brought to him. Are we training our sons to recognize the worth of a girl, the dignity of women, what are we modeling for them when we talk to their mother? What example are we setting when we talk to their mother? Men, do your words objectify women or dignify and honor women? You're training. They're listening, they're learning, they're imbibing, they're watching. Are we training sons of Adam to sing the worth of the daughters of Eve? That's what we did in the beginning. So many distortions of this in our culture and in our world. Gender wars and misogyny and abuse. And don't say boys will be boys if, you're, if you've just described male activities that don't have virtue and honor. Don't give them a pass on that, right? Coach to this. Coach to Genesis 2. How sad the cultural distortion that abounds in our time that gender Gender confusion is leaving boys and girls confused and dissatisfied with their God-given glory. Boys as boys, girls as girls, as God intended, glorious, equal, dignified, powerful, missional, task-oriented, got work to do, got rule to exert in the world for the glory of the one who made us. Back to marriage specifically, one man by creative miracle became two humans. 
and two humans in marriage become one flesh. That's why the Apostle Paul says this mystery is great. Two becoming one flesh. What does one flesh mean? It's not just about sexual intimacy, which by the way, God emphatically reserves sexual intimacy in all its forms for marriage. For a marriage between one man and one woman in covenant commitment for one whole life. But one flesh is more. It's not less than sexual intimacy in the context of marriage, but it's a whole lot more than sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. Ray Ortland says this in his book, it's two me's learning to become a unified us. I love that. One flesh is two me's, individual me's, learning to become a unified us. It's leaving and cleaving is the old school language. Shared home, one shared life, shared grief, shared joy, shared table, shared bed, shared money, shared worship. One shared life. Moses says in verse 24, you see what he, what he writes there. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. It's interesting that the language changes, right? So we were just watching the marriage. We were just listening to Adam singing in verse 23, and it's as if Moses is letting us watch this video of the first marriage, and then he hits pause. Adam is still in the midst of his song, singing of the glory of his wife, and there's Adam, freeze frame on the screen, and Moses now turns and looks at you in verse 24, and he says, let me give you a principle that will last forever in marriage. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. How do you know Moses is looking at you and not simply talking about what Adam said? Adam didn't have a father and a mother to leave. They were the first ones. They were the first human beings. So Moses says, for all of you watching this wonderful show, until time concludes the story of this momentary marriage here on this earth, This is what it's gonna look like. One life lived in covenant where you leave what you were joined to before and you create something new and you become one flesh. It's laying down a principle for all future marriages. Leave and hold fast. Leave and bond. Married couples, you need to sometimes just tell your kids, we're not available tonight. Sorry, we're not available. For the next few hours, don't even try. Uh, if you call, call from the hospital, right? And I wanna, it, need, it needs to be from the landline because I want to see St. Vincent's on my phone. And that's going to be helpful because it's going to tell us where to go once we're done with dinner. We're going to head over there and we're going to come see how you're doing, right? Sometimes it just, you need to prioritize the marriage. The marriage matters. The marriage is the foundation under everything else. There comes a point where if we keep giving ourselves constantly and with, with total availability to our kids, the marriage starts to crack and the marriage is, is bigger. If the marriage cracks, everything cracks. So give yourself and prioritize the marriage. Your kids will thank you for it. It's nothing like a secure home where the kids look up and they say, yeah, he didn't play with me today, but he loves my mom and she loves my dad. There's something, there's an intangible rock that's placed under our kids' feet when dad loves mom and mom loves dad. Let's prioritize our marriages. Next, human marriage is a this world illustration of an otherworldly reality. Verse 25, 
You see it there, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Sadly, that is not the case anymore, right? This, this verse 25 was rudely interrupted by something we call the fall. And the fall brought a flood of shame into the world and even into marriage. Husbands and wives still struggle with shame to feel safe in the presence of the other. Ever since the fall, humans, even in the context of marriage, have an instinct to cover our shame, to hide from one another. And friends, the deepest solution to human shame is not marriage. The deepest solution to human shame is the naked savior hanging on a tree so that he might clothe you in robes of righteousness forever. That's the answer to shame. You don't need a spouse to deal with shame. You need a savior. And he is here for us. We look to Christ. Look to Christ this morning. Take your shame to him and be covered completely. And friends, it's that gospel that should be placed as the central stone of the marriage. It's the center of the marriage and that message at the center of the marriage enables a husband and wife to start feeling more and more totally safe here, completely accepted here. Marriage isn't the ultimate thing, it points to the ultimate thing. God's relationship with his people is often represented as a marriage. You see that throughout the Old Testament. It's represented as a marriage. He refers to Israel as his bride. He marries her at Mount Sinai. They have a destination wedding. They're at Mount Sinai. The vows are there in the Ten Commandments and he starts with exclusive love. Here's, here's the way it is. Don't have any other gods. I'm your God. It's you and me forever. Establishes the terms of the covenant. Don't have any other gods. And what's the story of the Old Testament as you keep reading? What do you see God doing? Loving, cherishing, keeping, pursuing, washing his bride for better or for worse in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor. And his people are so wayward, prone to wander. And where she is faithless, he remains faithful. He's tenacious in his love. You read the prophet Hosea. God talks to the prophet Hosea and he tells the prophet, marry a prostitute so that the people of Israel who hear you prophesying so that they look at your life and see what it's like to be me, to be married to a woman who wants everybody else but God. And then you move over into the New Testament and ultimately the mystery that's unveiled in Ephesians 5 is not about the man and the woman, it's about Christ in the church. This mystery is great, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. There's a love story above the love stories. This ultimate union, before God created the world, his plan was a gospel. So the Old Testament prepares us to see what? It prepares us to see Jesus is the last Adam and his bride is the church. My wife Paula and I will celebrate 26 years next month on March the 15th. And short of the gift of salvation, God's greatest gift to my life is my wife, hands down. As much as I love the love story that we have, and if you got a few minutes, I'd love to tell you. I, we love telling our story of how we met and how God brought us together. In God's design though, our marriage is to picture a, the greatest love story ever written. And the greatest love story ever written isn't Matt Loves Paula as much as I love that one. It's Jesus loves the church. 
Jesus loves the church. He loved and gave himself for the church. He sought us. He bought us. He gave us his name. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He is preparing a place for us where we, his church, will be with him forever. And there's going to be a wedding feast that's going to top all the wedding feasts and that's going to end all the wedding feasts. And where are we now in the process of that unfolding story is this. The spirit is preparing Christ's bride for the big day. The big day is coming and the spirit is patiently working, washing, cleansing, renewing the bride of Christ. We're kind of a mess right now, but the church is gonna be radiant when that day comes. So two applications for us to think about. First, so marrieds, let your marriage be a preview of that story. Can I just be real here? So. Some of you, before the end of today, you need to hit reset in your marriage. Some of you need to just own what it has become and where it is and have a conversation and say, babe, I've not been aiming our marriage in this direction. This has not been, I haven't been singing this song that I was designed to sing and we need to look at each other and say, can we try again? Can, can we restart right here? Can we get help? Can we bring in other people, help, so that we can move forward in a healthy way? Because this matters. Let your marriage be a preview of that story. And second, so church, ready yourself for the day. And you might say, what day? Revelation 19, verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christian friend, whatever shape your calling has taken in this life, our common future is a wedding feast and the Holy Spirit is preparing us for it.